Okay. Let me just start. It is October 9th, 2017, and I'm interviewing I Meeker for the New York Trans Oral History Project, which seeks to collect stories from uh, the lives of trans and gender non-conforming New Yorkers as told in their own words. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to participate. Um, and uh, I guess a good place to start would be uh, tell me where you were born and um, describe that, that place a little bit for me. Mm -hmm. St. Louis, okay. um, 1967. Um, I only lived there like four years and when I was two my family my father was a journalist and he had a fellowship to write about urban development in Europe so my parents and three kids packed up a car and went to for a year they spent we spent a year in most of the major capitals and it's interesting because I realized that my parents were in their mid to late 20s at that point. They had three kids, and they sort of missed 1968, like everything that happened here, um, and then came back to St. Louis, um, and shortly after that moved to Northeast Ohio, and that's where I grew up until I came to college at Fordham in New York City. So do you, do you have any recollections of your time abroad? No. <laughs> I know my mother was really hopeful that I would become like multilingual, but I didn't develop any language, including English. So I actually have a speech, a tape of speech therapy. I was in speech therapy until I was in third grade or so. I was really um, delayed developmentally with speech, um, I sort of made my own language. Like there's a, an early tape, I think I was six, five or six, of her, uh, my mom giving me like a, you know, speaking to me on a cassette tape, and I don't understand a word that I'm saying, but my mother did, so. And I, now I'm an English teacher, so it's interesting how that happens. I use that to talk to my students who are all newcomers, who are learning English. I tell them that story as a, you know, a paradox of how you can. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, Wow. I, I have a friend, actually, whose child is going through uh, similar challenges with yeah. speech and this sort of thing, so I should, I should tell her that, yeah. <laughs> that things can change yeah. really dramatically. But um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, your parents and what they did? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, my mom is, um, still lives in Akron, where I'm from. Um, she was Italian and Russian, and her parents and grandparents came to work in factories in Northeast Ohio. So her dad worked in a rubber factory, Goodrich Tire, and her mom, I think, worked in a department store. Um, and she grew up in the Italian neighborhood. My father was Irish and German, more, much more um, culturally Irish, and his relatives also came to work. Um, his parents owned like a kitchen cabinet business. So um, I believe they were the first, yeah, they were the first generation to go to college. Um, my father went to Kent State and majored in journalism and um, then became a public relations executive and had his own firm. 
Um, and my mom was a nutritionist, like a dietitian. Yeah. And she worked for the county, Summit County, the WIC program for most of her career. What is the WIC program? It's women, infants, and children. It's um, for low-income women who are pregnant or have young children. Nutrition program, yeah. And that was based just in Ohio, or was that... No, it's a federal program, yeah. Okay. And so so you have pretty deep roots in Akron, Ohio. Yeah, I grew up there, yeah. Can you um, describe it for me? It's quite hip now. You know, I just saw it. There was a Huffington Post. It was um, one of the artsiest places to live now. It's a small city. Um, How can I describe it? Um, You know, my parents, I think, bought their house in 1973 when my brother was just born. We moved from St. Louis. We went to Columbus, Ohio. And then we moved to back to Akron because that's where my parents' families were, and I think they bought their house for eighty thousand dollars. It was like a Georgian revival. It was a mansion. You know, you go back now and you're like, "Wow, this is like an amazing place to grow up." But it was, you know, middle class, um, integrated in a good way. You know, I went to Catholic school. Um, I went to um, a very sports-heavy high school. Um, and played a lot of sports in high school, and, and that was like a big part of the culture. Um, I didn't appreciate it maybe as a kid growing up there. I mean, I was happy there growing up, but now when I go back, I realize it has a lot to offer, more than I realized when I was younger. Yeah. And can you tell me a little bit about what sorts of ideas about you know, what boys should be doing and what girls should be doing. You received as a young person growing up in Akron, Ohio and attending Catholic schools. Yeah. And um, You know, it's interesting because I, when I started my transition, I, you know, I went through every photograph I had of myself as a kid and I kept finding these pictures of myself in really non-conforming clothing. But I never... Um, felt as a kid pressured to um, fit into like a gender role. It's really interesting. I'm the third child and I have a younger brother. So I went from being like the youngest daughter to the oldest son, you know, when I transitioned. And a couple months into my transition, my father passed away. So um, I asked my mom, like when I started looking at photos, I hadn't come out to her, but I I had asked her, I said, do you remember dressing me when I was small? Like, did I want to wear the clothes I was wearing or did you put them on me or was there any issue? Because a lot of, you know, trans kids really have issues with that. But I never felt identified as a boy when I was younger. I was just me. But but my gender role was never very feminine. Like I am, we come from a family who, you know, fished, went camping, I played sports, I mowed the lawn, you know, I did like typical boy things sort of, but I was never, um, I never felt like pressure from my parents, which I'm so grateful for. You know, I don't know if you'd like to think that mothers especially sort of have an intuition about their children. So I asked my mom, I said, did you dress me in these little boys clothes for, did I want to wear them or what was going on? And they were very gender neutral colors. And, you know, I see pictures of like, you know, it was the 70s, like the polyester collars and the brown pants. And, 
And she sent back this email. She sent back three emails in a row, like stream of consciousness emails. And I was like, wow, she's really thought about this because like a lot's coming out, but I never really, you know, I didn't say anything to her, but she was saying, oh, it was the sixties and we, um, women's liberation and we didn't want to, um, force anybody to wear anything they didn't want to wear. Like she had all these, this rationale for what I was wearing. I was like, wow, she's, this is a, I hit something. (laughs) Um, so then I was able to actually bring that up like a few months later when I came out to her. I'm like, remember when I asked you about my clothing and, you know, because my therapist even asked me, he's like, did you, did you reject girls' clothes? I said, I don't remember feeling that way at all. It's just like who I was. And, um, you know, my father passed away. Before he died, he was unconscious. But I sort of said goodbye to him and I thanked him for not like gender, you know, forcing me into like a gender stereotype. I don't think he did it to any of us, but I think growing up, my two older sisters were more feminine. Yeah, you know, just by choice. Um, So it's interesting to think back, like what came first, you know. Mm -hmm. I do think it's something ingrained in like a child to see the world in a certain way. Yeah. And so you were growing up in the 70s. What did you... I know your parents did not pressure you into fitting in a certain or, or weren't rigid mm-hmm. at least gave mm-hmm. you some yeah. some space and I'm just wondering did you have exposure to some of these other ideas that your mom referenced you know because this is also a, a time before the internet you're yeah. growing up in a smaller yeah, city so um, you know I was I'm gonna go see Battle of the Sexes with a friend of mine this week and I was thinking... When With I was, Billie Jean yeah, King. I, I remember her being like the first out like lesbian that I had heard of. How old were you at the time? I, probably like nine or ten. Um, and then I also remember one day my father came home from work. It's so interesting because I asked my mom about this. If she would remember, and she didn't... I was maybe 12, probably 7th or 8th grade. And we were at the dinner table and he was talking about a person he worked with and he said, you know, whatever their name was, came into the meeting today and told everybody that he wants to be referred to as a woman and changed his name to a woman. And I don't understand, he wasn't judgmental about it. Like I remember as a kid thinking, oh, I'm going to listen to what he says, but I didn't know why I was so curious about his opinion. It's like wild. And he wasn't like judgmental or transphobic. He just didn't understand it, you know. And he, but he was respectful of the person. But it's interesting, um, like you pick up these messages as a kid about homophobia or transphobia or gender roles without even realizing you're doing it, you know. But you remember J- Billie Jean King. Yeah, yeah. And then I had um, basketball coaches and Girl Scout leaders, like the typical, like you know, strong women, who I wanted to be like you know I they were different than a lot of the other women in my life I guess although I I don't come from like a hyper feminine female relatives you know um or subservient like women at all like they were all my female relatives were like strong and independent so 
but I gravitate towards the more masculine ones as like who I wanted to emulate. Yeah. And so, so you're in high school, you're playing a lot of sports. You were exposed to Billie Jean King around 12. Yeah. You're growing up in a family that's giving you a little bit of space um, to sort of not be super whatever, whichever direction, mm -hmm. basically. Um, and so tell me a little bit about what brought you to New York. You said you came for Fordham? Yeah, for college. Yeah, I specifically wanted to move to New York. I don't really know why. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I know I wanted to study um, liberal arts, and I was Catholic. I went to Catholic school, and my father and I were looking through college books, and he said, oh, that's a good school. It's Catholic. And... Um, Yeah, and my, I was the first child in my family to go away. You know, my other, um, my other siblings went to Kent State, um, and my brother went to University of Cincinnati. So they sort of stayed locally. But for my parents, you know, it's, it's amazing to think, like it was the mid-'80s, enabling me to just, I didn't know anybody. You know, I just came here. So, yeah. And can you describe what, your first year in New York was like? Um, gosh. I know that's a big question, but... I would take, you know, I would take the D train. It was when the D train went all the way up to Fordham Road, down to West 4th Street, and just walk in circles around the village. Like, I would get lost, and I would just walk around. But I was curious about... I, I sort of... Mm, soon after I started college I identified as like a bisexual or a lesbian and then I think when I was a sophomore it was 1986 like the AIDS crisis I was in the middle of the AIDS crisis and hung out with mostly gay boys um, on campus um, it's amazing to think about we had a student group called FLAG Fordham Lesbians and Gays and it was undercover because it wasn't Um, supported by the administration and so we would meet in, and hang out and go out or have meet you know do cultural things together um, but when I was more aware of like HIV and AIDS I um, sort of got consumed by that yeah on campus and also outside of campus yeah do you remember the first time you heard about HIV or AIDS yeah well ironically it was in Ohio um, my father's frat big brother in his fraternity at Kent State um, was infected in a, he lived in LA and he was gay you know back then though it was like very like you were gay and with a partner or but you weren't really out you know it was very different um, and I also was always enamored with him he would come visit once in a while because his family lived in Ohio so when he traveled to London he was an antique dealer um, back to L.A., he would stay with us. And he played the piano, and he was funny, and I was, like, enamored with him. And he moved back to Ohio, I think when I was maybe a senior in, in high school, because he was sick, but nobody really talked about why. Um, and I helped him around his house and mowed his lawn and stuff like that. Um, and then I went to college, and he died, like, I think in 1986. Um, when you were a sophomore. Yeah, yeah, and that's when people started to quickly um, 
things started to change rapidly, it seemed like. But I, I learned about ACT UP, like my AIDS activism, when I was, um, I had an internship at Macmillan Publishing in the children's book section, and there was somebody there who um, was in ACT UP really early on, and it was the year, it was 1988, when um, Al Gore and Paul Simon were running for president, and Jesse Jackson, and Fordham was hosting a debate for the Democratic National Committee, and this man I worked with asked me if I could help them get onto campus to go to the debate. And it, I, we couldn't do it, but I was like, oh, what is this group? You know, and then I got involved after that because I noticed the homophobia on campus um, and the AIDS phobia on campus. Yeah. Now, when we, when we started talking, you you were you had mentioned oh you know my parents were in their 20s and then they went to Europe and they missed 1968 and they missed Kent State I'm wondering can you at this point can you talk to me a little bit about that and you know did your did your parents have are you trying to say that they missed sort of that activist moment and didn't Um, quite have that in them yeah well they're it's interesting because my um my father particularly was like a very active Democrat. He was a delegate for Jimmy Carter and he was the chair of the Ohio National Democratic Committee. And But they were a little older. Like I have aunts and uncles that are maybe five or eight years younger who were in college in the 60s. And my parents had already gone on and they had three kids and they were working. So they were like, rem- like removed from, I guess, that tumult, you know, that was happening. Um, so I guess it's connected because I like I never heard growing up like homophobic ideas from my family but still like when you come out and I identified as queer like 30 years ago but I never came out to my parents I would never I wasn't able to even go there and I how how come just fear of rejection yeah. or judgment, you know? Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm just wondering where that intense fear came yeah. from if your parents, if you, you didn't ex- experience like... I think Catholicism. I th- you know, I think the ca- like my upbringing, yeah. Um, but like when I transitioned, I knew I had to come out. So it was a very different... You know, I came out to my mother as gay and trans at the same time, sort of. You know, because um, I have male partners, so um, yeah. I mean, that was I was able to. Sh- my family knew like I was an ally or very dedicated to equality, um, but I was able to sort of hide behind, you know, being straight. I never identified as straight, but you know that what people perceive. It's very different, yeah. So what what spurred you, given the, you know, this uh, Catholic upbringing, it's your first time in this big city, the AIDS crisis is happening. How did you go from sort of that context in Akron, Ohio, to I'm going to join ACA, ACT UP, I'm going to be part of this underground yeah, gay mafia at Fordham? Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, How just... 
to see like um, the homophobia, you know, and they were like, "Can you tell me stories?" Um, not only homophobia but misogyny. I mean, like for instance, um, I hope it's different now, but when I was there, you know, they have like the health clinic for students that didn't really do much. If you needed like a a gyne exam, they'd send you off campus in the South Bronx to like a community health clinic, um, which was sort of not very accessible. Um, I was on the Fordham Helpline, which was like a crisis prevention hotline that was peer run, and um, faculty from the psych department trained us, and we were like crisis counselors on the phone, and we would give out if if. If a woman called and said, I need birth control or I need an abortion or I'm pregnant, I don't know what to do, we gave them like Planned Parenthood's phone number. And I remember as the president of Fordham Helpline, I went to Lincoln Center. We have a campus on Lincoln Center to advertise our services. And the director of the counseling center there, this was in 1989, I think, because I was a senior, um, said, Why would we advertise you're your promoting abortion? I was like, Man, this is, and it was like, you know, the Jesse Helms era, Edwin Meese, the pornography, anti, you know, it was like really right wing Reagan. I don't, I don't know that second reference, Edward. I don't Ed, know that. Edwin Meese, right. he, they were Ronald Reagan's like right hand, you know, he had a um, commission, an anti pornography commission, but also just right wing, like religious, the religious right was really becoming more powerful. Um, and I don't think of the Jesuits as the right wing, but compared to um, just it wasn't a very friendly environment to be gay or queer on campus in the 80s, <laughs> you know. Um, so, so, so I graduated with an English degree and my first job was at Covenant House. Do you know what Covenant House is? Do you know the story yeah. behind Covenant House? No. Can you tell so, us what tell us what Covenant House is and and the story? Yeah, just in so a, in a nutshell. <laughs> oh gosh, um, they were founded by a Franciscan priest. He's dead now, Bruce Ritter, and he was very right wing and had. A, a, they were extremely well funded by like business people. Um, he was on the Anti-Pornography Commission for, I think, Bush Sr. or Ronald Reagan. But um, it was a, it's a homeless shelter. So it's like a, they had, when I worked there, um, they had covenant houses in several U.S. cities and also um, in some other countries. And, um, but very conservative Catholic, like at the base. But they were doing good work for homeless kids but for instance when you start there I did fundraising um, you're encouraged to go on their their van they have a van that patrols the city and gives out food and helps teenagers who are on the street so and it was like the middle of the crack epidemic so we went to Harlem we went you know to the South Bronx and then we went to the piers on the west side and there were a lot of like hustlers like teenagers looking for condoms and I remember I was in this van and they're like oh we can't give you we don't give condoms out but we have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Do you want some food? And I'm like, what's wrong with this picture? Um, and then I was sitting at my desk one day. It's like 1990. And I wasn't really 
that active in ACT UP yet. I'd heard of them and I heard of WAM. Do you know WAM? Women's Health Action Mobilization. They were like an offshoot, a women's offshoot of, of ACT UP. And then um, WAC was the Women's Action Coalition. So these affinity groups, they were outside my window protesting that Coven House didn't give birth control or um, pregnancy prevention because they were Catholic, their bylaws. And I was sitting there and thinking, what's I should really be down there instead of here raising money for this place. And then soon after, there was a scandal at Covenant House where um, one of the residents accused Bruce Ritter of sexual harassment and sexual misconduct, and he was found guilty of that. And it led to like a load of, like a year's worth of um, investigation by all the newspapers on financial impropriety. And so anyway, so I left there and I started working AIDS services and I worked there until I became a teacher yeah for like 15 years or so when you say you worked in AIDS services what uh, organization did you work for I started with Bailey House AIDS called AIDS Resource Center back then and they were a really grassroots housing organization they were literally funded by like gay activists in the village who helped homeless homeless people with AIDS um, when they got kicked out of their apartments because they had AIDS, their landlords would kick them out or um, discriminate against them. So they have Bailey House as a residence on Christopher Street. It's still there. Um, they also have scattered side apartments. So I started there doing fundraising. And then I moved to San Francisco, as one does, <laughs> often from New York, and I worked for Project Inform, which was a treatment organization. A lot of great activists there. And then I moved back to New York, and I worked for the HIV Law Project, um, which was founded by Terry McGovern, who was an amazing lesbian AIDS activist. She filed a class action lawsuit against the CDC, against the federal government, when the definition of AIDS only included, was including mostly like gay white men. And there were um, opportunistic infections that women experienced and that people of color or IV drug users had that weren't in the definition. Therefore, People of color and women weren't getting access to the services that um, men were, and they changed they changed the policy based on that. So that was amazing. And then after that, I worked for the Alpha Workshops, which is still around, which is a design studio, which stemmed out of Bailey House. There was a, um, a social worker there who was also a fabric painter, and when AIDS came, he became a social worker, and he founded his own design studio that employs and trains people with HIV. So, wow. yeah. So HIV and AIDS really shaped your time in New York in a yeah. fundamental yeah. way. Yeah. Did you lose a lot of friends to HIV and AIDS? Um, you know, it's interesting. The first friend I had who was positive was actually a friend from, from high school. A woman, a straight woman, um, which is ironic. You know, it was like back when a lot of women weren't being diagnosed. Um, and she's healthy. She's great. She lives in Michigan. Um, but yeah, definitely with... Um, I remember like opening the New York Times and you could see... I and mean, this is not only when like celebrities were dying, but just people that were associated with the organizations I worked with or... Um, donors, a lot of donors. Um, 
since I did fundraising, you know. Um, yeah. Did you also attend ACT UP meetings mm -hmm. at the time? Can you tell me a little bit about what those were like? Um, yeah, they were great. I mean, they were like democracy in action. Um, at the center, before it was renovated. It's beautiful, but it was like when, um, you know, the Keith Herring bathroom was just a wall. Um, they were crowded, and the energy was just, um, it was pretty incredible. It was easy to get swept into it, like as a young person who really wanted to make a difference, because it was so tangible, you know, like, you know, I joined the housing committee because I had a background in um, homelessness, homeless services. So, and how old were you? So you had been working at Covenant House. You graduated Fordham. Yeah. I was like 24, yeah, 23, 24. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because I was twenty four. I was twenty four, twenty five when I moved to San Francisco, and I had been working in AIDS for like four years at that point. Yeah. Um, act up meetings it's amazing how I went to a rise and resist meeting recently and a lot of act up people are there original act up people are also involved in there and having gone to like you know after the election and going to meetings where people are trying to organize actions there's no better experts and they got you know their Roberts rules of order and everything they used were really from like the women's the women's movement and the civil rights movement, so it goes back to like how these mass movements organize themselves. Um, having a voice for everybody, but also um, having leaders, but anybody could become a leader. You know, I don't know how to explain it. It wasn't anarchy, <laughs> but it was also like heated debates and heated conversations and then you know eventually it split um yeah at that time were the experiences and needs of trans folks kind of on your radar too or was that you know i think about this all the time the only trans people i knew is one of my friends um, detransitioned, um, and he, and then yeah, he was living as a man during that time. But before that, he had been living as a woman, um, and then a few trans women, and I'd never met a trans man, or even gender nonconforming. There were like butch lesbians and gay men. Like, that was really, you know. But myself and many people I knew were more on the spectrum or, like, bisexual or queer, you know. But even back then, like, Queer Nation had started. Have you ever heard of Queer Nation? Like, that was an offshoot of ACT UP and all that, you know. And that was, like, a sort of a radical idea that there's, like, the spectrum, you know. Yeah. Um. Did you, were you involved at all or, I mean, maybe this is too big a question, but I'm just wondering what, you know, given that your 
your background, your initial experience was doing work around homeless folks living with HIV and AIDS. Was there any effort on the part of ACT UP or an idea maybe that came up with you to sort of like pull more, more of those people into the organizing or because I, I don't know. Trans people? Uh, no, no, like the homeless folks yeah. that you're working I mean, with. when I was in ACT UP, we did, um, we did a major action with Emmaus House, which was in Harlem. They were a men's, I think, I think men's shelter or men and women. A what house? Emmaus, Emmaus House. I don't even know if they're still around. Um, on the Day of Desperation, it was like a huge action throughout the city, and there were all these different affinity groups. Um, that was, if you look at Cher Solman's d- documentary, you know, the, at the end, she, she highlights it, where they went to Grand Central Station, but I was in a holding cell during that time because we, we planned this action. It was really good. It was a mass house. It was like homeless men, um, a lot who were infected through IV drug use, you know, who had a history in the criminal justice system. And then it was like these white East Village act up people. You know, it was an interesting connection, a, a collaboration of like very different people. Um, but we, um, they crafted coffins in their wood shop, and then we went to the corner of, um, I think, 145th Street and Adam Clayton Powell Boulevard and, and handcuffed ourselves to them and got dragged away. Um, it was really well coordinated. So, yeah, it was very, and that was um, Charles King and people from Housing Works were really involved in the Housing Committee, too. That was back then when they just were founded. And they were very grassroots-led, you know, client-centered. Yeah. So And so was Bailey House, you know, but we, we weren't as politically. Yeah. And um, did you attend ACT UP meetings in San Francisco at all, or was... No, you know, it's interesting. When I moved to San Francisco at Project Inform, you know, ACT UP San Francisco split... They were Act Up San Francisco and Act Up Golden Gate. And Act Up San Francisco, from what I understand, became more, not anarchist, they wanted to focus more on like alternative health, and Act Up Golden Gate was more like political. So they sort of split into two different groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Act Up San Francisco, I believe, at one point was claiming that there is not a connection between HIV and AIDS. Yeah, yeah. I think they were considered sort of not science-based, and there was a lot of, yeah. So the people I worked with at Project Inform were researchers, like literally treatment experts, and that was pretty cool because I was working there. I only worked there for like a year, Um, but some of the people I met there were really involved in the San Francisco, the Ryan White, AIDS Council um, and funding for the city. Um, And when Proteus was discovered, that was like 1996, and I was there during that time, so it was like interesting because everything shifted. When I got back to New York and worked at the HIV Law Project, the picture of AIDS was changing a lot. Not so much for women and people of color yet, you know, but yeah, something had changed. So I want to back up a little bit. When you were working at Covenant House and Bailey House and these in New York, where were you living? Carroll Gardens. 
Yeah, which was is also very different now. <laughs> what was Carol Gardens like then? Um, you know, I'm 25% Italian, but I, don't, I guess I don't look I don't look Italian. I don't speak Italian. I felt like an outsider there. Um, you know, I was. Um, what's the word? Heckled or harassed on the street a couple times for being like masculine. Like it was very old Italiano. You know, now like when I go past my, I'm like, wow, this is different now. But I mean, it was safe if you were white. It was a safe neighborhood to live in. I hate to, you know, like my African American friends didn't really feel very safe when they visited, or my friends that looked different, or. Um, but yeah, and I, but I lived in Brook. I've lived in Brooklyn my entire, besides living in the Bronx for college, my entire New York experience. Yeah. And what what brought you to San Francisco? Um, you know, it was like the mid '80s, and I remember feeling I was in a relationship, and we both just sort of wanted to leave. Like it didn't feel so safe. And I thought, oh, what I, didn't feel safe? Just the streets, you know. It was like, um, and just something new. Like I was young, and you know, it was an opportunity to try something new. Yeah. Because of the crack epidemic, or because of policing, or because um, of that was. Mm, I would say more like drugs, like crime. You know, it was in, when David Dinkins was the mayor, who I supported, but there were, like, problems. Yeah. Yeah, safety-wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so you moved to San Francisco. What What was... So then this is in, like, the late 80s? 94, 95. 94, 95. And so this is also another time that's before gentrific, real intense gentrification in San Francisco, right? Yeah, you know, I lived in a pretty gentrified neighborhood. Oh. Well, it's interesting. I mean, we moved to the Lower Haight originally, which was, oh man. I've it, it was ironic because I thought to myself when we were moving, where else in the country could I live that's a progressive, you know? And I'm glad I lived it. It was beautiful, but I never witnessed so much crime and... Um, inequity in income as I did in San Francisco. Like, it's so noticeable there. I don't know if it's, it's been so much, 20 years since I lived there. But, I think um, it's a lot worse now. It's, I mean, it was the first time I ever saw, like, someone stole my bag. I saw somebody hold up somebody with a gun. The homeless problem was extremely disproportionate compared to New York. Like, there's many more, like, aggressive, I hate to say aggressive, but mentally people that need mental health services that are out on the street that aren't treated. And it's ironic because the second part of my life in San Francisco, I worked at UCSF in the Psychiatric Institute as a curriculum coordinator. And I knew psychiatrists there who were amazing, who were doing like grassroots work and the hate with substance use and with HIV and the research there is like top of the line. Um, but even like with HIV too, I think when I lived there, I remember talking to somebody at Project Inform and they said, you know, there are over 80 or AIDS organizations in the city and the highest infection rate. Like, what, something's not meshing, you know? So, um, I'm glad I lived there, 
but I missed the East Coast, so I moved back. <laughs> it's very different, yeah. I remember reading this book on homelessness that claimed that two-thirds of the homeless population, and this was in um, 2000, I would say, that I came across this book, was created after Reagan closed down mm-hmm. the state hospitals. Yeah, like the deinstitutionalization. I mean, I also worked when I... Um, of state hospitals. Yeah, yeah. When I worked, when I came back to New York, I worked for a year or so at um, Community Access, which is a great organization that does scattered site housing for people with psychiatric disability. But yeah, because people were deinstitutionalized, but there were no supports, so there was a lack of supportive housing or support services. Right. So you've worked with people with really intense, complex yeah. needs for a really, really long time. Yeah. yeah, like dual diagnosis. and. What drew you to that work? I don't know. I mean, in me, just even as a kid. Jesuit impulses. Yeah, I don't know. I, um, I just have a lot of compassion for... Even when I was at college, you know, I was on the suicide prevention hotline and when I was in high school, I was a candy striper and a Girl Scout and, you know, like just the, the uh, desire to help other people. Yeah. So you come back to New York and this is like late 90s? Yeah, 96. 96, okay. And, um, and so tell me a little bit about did New York seem different to you? Did New York change? Where did you? Mm. I know that's a God, I feel so old. You know, the turning point, one of the turning points <laughs> for me was in Union Square when Tower Records closed and they put up that high rise with like the clock on top of it. Now it's like Times Square, but back then I was like, oh my God, what's happening? You know? Um, but yeah, I guess... It, it felt much safer. Well, when did Giuliani get into office? Was it before Giuliani? I don't even remember. But then that happened. You know, so then it's like, oh my God. You know, and then things got more expensive. Like the stores, you know, independent stores started to, you know, like that shift started to happen. But I love, I mean, I've lived here 30 plus years now. And, you know, there are still some, some stores. I'm like, oh, I went there when I was in college. It's still there. It's like a miracle, but, you know. You know, one thing I should ask, what, what are some of the things you did for fun while you were doing all of this work in New York? You know. What are some places you went to? I mean, you know, it's interesting. As a young person, I wonder if, like, people that are really doing a lot of activist work younger feel this way, but, like, sounds sort of like protests were like our social life you know that's what you did you went to like an act up meeting and then you went out and then you went here and then you did a phone tree before the internet you'd like have a phone tree you know what a phone tree is Mm -hmm. you would get a list of phone numbers and you'd call you'd be responsible for calling this person so like you didn't get a message protest tomorrow nine o'clock at you know and you'd call this person, they'd call that person, they'd call... And so then everybody would find out. Yeah, it's amazing what we coordinated without computers, you know. Um, but what else did I did for fun? What else did I do for fun? Just hung out in the village, I guess, in Chelsea. 
in the East Village. Brooklyn really wasn't hip back then. <laughs> I lived there, but I'd go into the city to go out, you know. Yeah. And, um, and so when did you decide to become an educator? Um, I was working at Alpha Workshops, and I actually got um, sick. I, I have a genetic kidney disease, and it was diagnosed. And I thought to myself, I loved the organization I was working with, but I didn't want to sit in front of a computer and do grant proposals forever. Um, and I'd always, in the back of my mind, been interested in teaching, but I didn't know how to go about it. And then I read about the Teaching Fellows Program, and I applied, and I told myself, if they take me for English, I'll do it. Usually that's like a low, that was a low, they wanted math or special ed teachers. Um, it was lower in demand to need English. But when I interviewed, I got English. So that was 19, no, that was 2004. So I, I no, 2004, 2003. Um, I started teaching when I was in 2005. Yeah, it was 2004 because I got into the program and then I went to the training and then I started teaching in 2005. Yeah. What do you like best about teaching? Um, I know it sounds very trite, but I do think you know, you're making it, learn, first learning so much about young people like, I learn much more, I think, than I teach. But um, but being able to learn together about differences, you know, especially the, in the school. I didn't always teach in an international school. And it's, like, fascinating to me to learn from them. I mean, I learn from my American students, too, but it's, like, a different, different... Where, where did you start teaching? Canarsie. My first job was on middle school. I taught 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. Um, I taught like the 6th grade humanities block. So it was like history, ancient history and English mixed. 180 minutes a day. So it's like two, hour, you know, two and a half hours. Um, and then I taught 8th grade. Then I taught 7th grade. And then I went to high school and taught English. Um, but because I had a health background... I was also a massage therapist for a short time. So I had anatomy. I had like this health background and an interest in health. And so at the first high school I taught in, which was in East New York, um, I taught health and English. And I sort of built on that, and that's what I teach now too. And can you talk to me a little bit about what were some of the challenges your students were facing at that time in Canarsie or East New York or some of the things that you know you felt were unique to those Canarsie well it's interesting because the kids in Canarsie were more middle income Caribbean so they had pretty stable families Um, they a lot of their parents both worked like middle income jobs um but when I went to East New York, it was very different, like very low income, multitude of issues. And it was an example of how a school gets closed. They didn't close it, but I, I saw for the first time, literally like the segregation, in a, like how it happens, how a school gets 
to be a school where it's under-enrolled because it doesn't have much to offer the students or they think it doesn't have much to offer them so they don't apply to go there. You know, when you're in eighth grade, you get a big book and you have to apply to high schools. When I taught eighth grade, I realized that eighth grade students, they're really not knowledgeable enough or mature enough to choose a school based on anything other than, is my friend going to go there? Where's it located? Do I have to wear a uniform? Those are the three things. Like, oh no. So they pick their high school, but the high school I taught in then was like a health-focused high school. But it was in a building with three other schools. It was one of Bloomberg's small schools initiative. He, in about 2000, Mayor Bloomberg made a small schools initiative thinking that would like fix some things. And I don't know if statistics prove that, but um, what it di- what I do know is that if your principals don't get along and you have four schools in a building, you're like doomed because you have to collaborate and share all the communal spaces. You know, the lunchroom, the auditorium, the gymnasium, the teams are all together. Um, but the school where I taught, it had like really committed teachers and committed students, but the students had so many social problems that they didn't have enough support there to really succeed how they could. It was very stressful and it wasn't safe. There was a lot of gang activity um, and the principal wasn't a strong leader and didn't get along with the other three principals. So the teachers were trying to do everything. You know, do her, she was great at hiring competent teachers who could do her job, but she didn't lead. Yeah, she didn't lead and um, I had a job. I didn't have my own classroom. So I sat in the back with the attendance teachers and I heard all the stories about you know, why kids weren't coming to school. And it's like so freaking sad. You know, like how do we solve these social problems? Um, and when I, when I got the job I have now, I sort of had like survivor's guilt, you know, because my school now is very different. The kids are, a lot of them are low income and they have also have a multitude of social issues, but they want to be in, the school offers them so much that they want to be there. It's like very, like a family, which is something my other school didn't cultivate, yeah, which the kids desperately needed, you know. Can you, can you tell me, you know, a story about students you remember in those early years or? Mm. There was one boy, he was so talented. His father died when he was, I think, a sophomore. Um, you know, I often wonder, like, wow, it's been 10 years. Those kids are, like, 30 now. You know, they're, like, so much older. Like, what are their, where are they? Um, he lives near me. His, he lived near me. Now he may still live near me. So after he um, graduated, I kept in touch with him for a year or two. But he so wanted to be a physician, I know he was capable of it, but the school where, this is in East New York, the school where I taught, it didn't give him, I think, enough opportunity or challenge, you know? 
I'm sure he graduated there and he did well. But I would love to know, like, where he went to college or what, how he is. Yeah. Yeah. Can you, can you talk to me a little bit about, so you were, te- you started teaching when Giuliani was still in office. Bloomberg. Bloomberg yeah, started. Okay. 2005. So besides the small schools initiative, what were other changes that Bloomberg brought to New York City well, schools? Joel Klein was the chancellor, so they were all into charters. Um, Who is Joel Klein? He was the school, he was like Chancellor Farina, he was the chancellor. Um, he was a businessman, you know, originally. Um, I remember when I was in graduate school, I was researching all the testing going on. You know, they were really into the testing um, in increasing accountability through standardized testing and changing how teachers were evaluated, um, which has its pros and cons, but it's complicated. But they were way into the testing, and I believe Joel Klein had a relationship with Princeton Review which got the contract to do all the testing. <laughs> but it's like so obvious, like people are making millions of dollars off of all this testing, but the schools aren't really, you know, the students I taught at least weren't, um, weren't benefiting from it, you know. Um, I mean, it's simple as not having an air conditioner in your classroom. You have to take the Regents exam and it's 98 degrees out. And kids at, you know, this school have air conditioning. You know, it's like silly to think about, but it's, it affects the quality of life for a student who comes to school, you know. Um, so, yeah, they were really into the giving charters more space, giving, you know, charters get free rent. Um, yeah, they, yeah, they don't, well, de Blasio, see, that's the reason why, like, Eva Moskowitz and Success Charter Academy are, like, arch nemesis of Bill de Blasio because he wanted to, you know, charge rent. Yeah, they can move into a building. I mean, under Bloomberg, he sort of paved a way for them to take over public school space and give less space to the public, you know, to the school that was there. Like, now they're sharing space, you know. Yeah. But I'm the UFT chapter leader at my school, too, so... <laughs> um, I'm a big believer in unions, but um, but I do like see firsthand, I feel like the support, the collaboration between the UFT and the DOE is much greater now that de Blasio is the mayor and that um, Chancellor Farina, you know, things aren't perfect, but it's much a much different attitude, you know. In your capacity as a teacher and someone who has a background working with people in precarious housing, people with HIV and AIDS, what what kind of um, impact, I guess, did, you know, being queer, I guess, or uh, in the in the classroom have on your students or or did it or can you, you talk came out to them? Not necessarily, but on your, you know, what impact do you think that that background and that who you are had on your? Well, you know, when I interviewed for the fellows, I remember they asked me how I would relate to students who were so different from me, and I talked about that, like that, you know, my um, homeless students or students with 
HIV positive parents or students who are HIV positive, you know, I understand the, that constituency and their needs. And um, I always taught when I taught health, when I taught HIV and STI prevention, I would tell them stories about, you know, AIDS that nobody knew about it when I was in high school and New York City. It's a law that we teach this to you, you know, that the mayor wants you to know because it can save your life and um, we're going to use know how to use a condom and this is why, you know. Um, so I always brought that in, like that sense of um, matter-of-factness, you know, about it. But I think kids, I, I know teenagers appreciate that. Like most of my students, the one thing they say often is, we wish adults would trust us or tell us the truth. Like, don't make up stories, just tell us the truth. So I try to be authentic with them, you know. Did you ever have students who were queer themselves or trans themselves and clocked you as someone that's, you know, part of their team? And <laughs> yeah, well, when I came out to my students last year, um, like four or five students came out to me whom they may not have come out. Some came out to other teachers or students and some haven't. But um, I think that, I mean, I know that did help them. Yeah, and I'm proud of that. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about your, you know, your identity as a, tra- as a trans man. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Can you be more specific? Well, um, I'm growing up in an era where I'm sort of like what they call a late millennial. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm Generation X. I'm, I'm like yeah. borderline Generation uh-huh. X, late millennial. And I'm growing up in an era where uh, a lot of the folks that are younger than me, and I see this in a lot of youth, a lot of their their language and how they identify is coming from the internet. They have exposure to different things. There's a certain confidence that, that they have and how they talk about themselves. And I'm wondering for someone who's a little bit older than a millennial, Mm -hmm. uh, how, how did you come to find the, language around your identity and how did you come to that I know that's a huge question I know it's kind of an unfair question I admit well no but but I'd have to say like I mean I'm 50 and I didn't come out until I was 49 well it's interesting like 10 years ago or so I went to this therapist and she was like queer herself and I identified as queer or bisexual. And I remember, I, I, it's so wild, because I just remembered this like a year ago when I started to transition. I went to her like 10 years ago, and I said, I, and I said the words, I said, I think I'm, I might be transgender. And she, I remember, I can see her right now. She was sitting across, and she's like, mm, no, no. And we never talked about it. So that was back then, to th- think that like, there was literally no language to talk about it. Like that you could access out. as or someone who's... Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. And then we never talked about it. And um, 
and so I how can I even I think like a you know when I started my transition last March like a year and a half ago I sought out a trans male therapist but I consciously don't know why I mean I did it but I wasn't consciously thinking oh I think I'm trans so I'm going to find a trans male therapist I just thought it's wild like how the brain works and I remember the first time I saw him I said oh I'm like genderqueer but I'm, and I was having like anxiety and panic attacks for years I had ever since I was in college um, and they were getting worse and um, my partner actually suggested like why don't you see a therapist go back into therapy so I found my therapist who I still see who's amazing and I remember I think the first day mm, I came home and I was journaling because I read back and it was the first after the first day I saw him I think I wrote I can't believe maybe I'm transgender. Like I said it to myself, but I didn't say it to anybody else for like a, you know, a month or two. Yeah. Um, so there really literally wasn't the language for it. Like I didn't grow up with the language. But the amazing thing is like when I came out, and this gives me like incredible hope. Like my, my niece and nephew are just turning 15. They're from Northeast Ohio. They go to public school. Um like typical, you know, internet tweens and teens. Um, my nephew's very introverted, very STEM-focused computer. My niece is like goes to, went to like a performing arts school. So I had this plan to come out to them with their mom and my partner, and we were eating dinner, and I was going to talk to them about their twins. So I talked to them about their childhood, and I said, what did, you know, do you remember your favorite toy? And we were talking about gender roles and what they had because they were a boy and a girl and then I came out to them I thought my nephew would like run out of the room and never want to see me again and so I came out to them and the and Jordan the girl had the biggest smile on her face and she said um I'm so happy you, you can finally be who you really are and I'm like okay and then he said, so what pronouns do you use? <laughs> I was like, this is what we're dealing with. Not at all what I expected. I expected her to be supportive but confused. And they were like, we know all about this. The internet. The kids have websites. We know all about this. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I think like Jazz Jennings, like her little reality show is like really helpful mm-hmm. to kids, you know. So, so then I thought, right, when I tell my students, they're older that they're from many different cultures and countries some of which outwardly like murder and persecute gay people so I'm like I don't know how this is going to happen but I really front loaded it and prepared I made like a I was I really prepared before I did it um and it was pretty remarkable I remember the first day of school um I introduced like Teaching Tolerance has a great poster on gender and it has like a box for gender expression, gender identity, sexual orientation, and biological sex. And it talks about like the difference. And I think I went over that the first or second day when we did, because I did pronouns. I was they and them last year in September and it like was confusing to the kids. But um, we were talking about that and 
one of my students, she's a senior now, she raised her hand and she said, I think I said something like, Does anyone, has anyone ever heard of this? And she said, oh, I had a genderqueer mentor this summer. And I was like, all right, this is what I'm dealing with. I was like, ooh, I was like breathing a sigh of relief. Like it's been introduced by them, you know? So it's still a process. You know, it's like I have to, I still am thinking this year now how I'm going to, if I'm going to disclose it and how I'm going to disclose it. Like every group of students is different. But the language is definitely there. So that's, a, that's great. Yeah. I'm wondering, too, as you're talking about this, as someone who kind of came of age when the Christian right was first getting its feet yeah. feet wet, <laughs> um, and now the moment that we're in, we do have this language, but there's also this tremendous uh, pushback yeah. and violence. Yeah. And on Friday, uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions just passed uh, broad, um, I don't even know what the proper language is, but basically broad broad uh, guidelines mm-hmm. around... Right, reverse the guidance. Reversing the guidance on, um, you know, protecting religious freedom mm-hmm. so you don't have to employ people who have had abortions, have mm-hmm. had premarital sex, are LGBT, whatever, whatever. And I'm wondering what... You know what are what are some of your thoughts as someone who kind of came of age when that stuff was yeah. beginning? How do you make sense of this moment that we're in? Um, you know, it's really interesting. Like last year, you know, like the Gavin Grimm Supreme Court case, that's got changed right after they reversed guidance on the bathroom. Um, the ACLU got did an amicus brief of trans educators that I participated in. And I remember during that time, I thought, I remember when he got elected. A friend of mine who's like a white cis man, very progressive, but coming from that perspective, said, oh, nothing will change. And Sheila and I both looked at him and said, we're freaking scared. Um, and not to be like overly dramatic, but a, you know, a gay friend of mine said, he's like, this is like Berlin in the 1930s, you know, like, yes, the Congress needs to, I believe, guide, they can reverse guidance, but then there would be a court, there are already these, you know, there's already lawsuits, but just the fact that he's using you know, it's obvious what he's doing. It's like he's using the most vulnerable groups to appease the right wing. Um, but I keep thinking to myself, like I've never, I never felt like scared. And I don't, I mean, I don't feel literally like frightened to go out of my house. Like I, it's, it's ironic because it's like as, like my mother is scared for me. Like she said, you know, when Trump was elected, she's worried about me. You know, and I drive to Route 80 to Ohio in the middle of the night and go to a rest stop. Like I am scared of violence, but it's, I've never been. But on the other hand, 
I was subject to much more fear living as like a masculine woman than I am as a feminine man. Like it almost changed overnight. And that makes me realize like the, I hate to overuse it, but like the privilege I have. I mean, it's like, talk about a mind fuck. <laughs> you know, to like suddenly get off the subway and realize like no one's looking at me. It's three o'clock. You know, I don't feel at any, any danger. Whereas a week ago or a month ago or two months ago, I felt totally different because I'm perceived differently now or just to be given more space or more like respect on an everyday walking down the street, I guess is where I feel it the most. It's sickening um, that that's, you know, the world we live on. But no, I don't know. I, I am um, like I go into my classroom and I, or I talk to my niece and nephew or I see all this great stuff happening. I'm like, the world is almost beyond gender. It will be beyond gender one day. I'm like convinced, but then you have this. But I remember, I don't know who said it, not Audre Lorde. Somebody was talking about, you know, when a movement, the more powerful they get. I remember Larry Kramer in Act Up. He's, I think, in, in Sarah Shulman's documentary or another documentary saying, they're scared of us. That's what we want. You know, like when you become more visible and there's a backlash against you, your group is more powerful. That's why they're backlashing. So it's like a paradox, you know. But no, it's really scary, especially, you know, like my, I go to school every day, my students, I keep thinking, like if I think I'm scared, being like a Muslim girl, you know, in a gas station in, in the middle of the country, how scared she must feel. Um, I just sort of try to think about how to um, make a difference, like in the classroom. That's why I think coming out to students talking about how diversity is such strength. You know, my students can't, a lot of them, not all of them will become citizens, but a lot of them like can't wait to become citizens so they can vote. So that's a good sign, you know? Yeah. Is there anything that you want to add to our conversation? Um, that you're dying to share? That I, I guess this. just... Um, I guess the biggest lesson that I'm learning, it's interesting when people say, like, you're, sometimes they'll say, you're brave. And I'm like, I hate that. So I'm like, not that it's really condescending, but it's like, well, no, I just am. You know, I, I, like, I, it's not like I can't be who I am um, but I think overall the main thing I'm learning is that adults have many more hang ups than <laughs> young people do and I'm just looking forward to like the next generation shifting so much it's already happening but um, it constantly amazes me like how uncomfortable adults are with gender in all you know all different ways and young people are much more insightful and open about it which is hopeful you know yeah do you have any questions for me or any other um I don't think so I guess I'm curious about 
you know, one one thing that's hard is that most of the trans men I've met, like I didn't know any trans men until I started to transition. But still, most of them I know are like younger than me. And I am constantly looking for like, you know, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to listen to stories too. Like it's so powerful. And when I read or hear narratives of men who are already in a relationship when they started to transition, because that's, I think, one of the hardest things, you know. Like it's different when you're transitioning and then you start dating and then you, you know, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see who else you've talked to. Well, I'm excited to share that with yeah. you. Um, thanks so much for sharing so sure. much of your life and, you know, a lot of history of New York um, in this oral history. Thank you. Thank you. Uh-huh.